Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirits that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said this to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and he went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you have ever been, you know, at the house ready to leave, right? Whether it's to go to work, you know, or to school or an appointment, and you're ready to go. You're dressed, everything's ready, you know, you're on time, and then you begin to look around, and you cannot, for the life of you, find your Keys. Who's been there? Right? Okay. And so you begin to panic a little bit, right? And you start to search around the house, and you always obviously begin with the place that you last remember seeing your keys, the obvious places, right? The places that you normally would put your keys, like the, uh, the kitchen counter or, or the coffee table or your, or your wife's purse or, if, it's, if you're a woman, your purse. And then when you don't find them there, then you move on to the less likely places, but still not too uncommon, right? Like the bathroom counter, maybe they're there, or, or the nightstand you know, by the bed, or, or the pocket of your pants that are laying on the floor you, because, because your husband didn't pick them up, right? Or, or maybe you, know, you, you, know, you have, um, uh, maybe you even left them in the car, right? And so you go and you look, and you, but you find that, you, that, that they're not there. You can't find them. And then you begin to really panic, you know, cause, because you're like, you know, I've got to leave and I don't know where they are. And you begin to look in the most unlikely places now, right? So the freezer becomes possible, right? The refrigerator, right? And you're like, well, why would you look in there? Well, because I can't find them anywhere else, so I might as well look here. And you check under the bed and in the linen closet underneath the towels, right? And then between the cushions of the couch. And then, you know, right, your head begins to spin and you think about, you know, where they possibly could be because you, did you drop them? And you begin to think, well, maybe, maybe the kids took them, Right? In fact, that's right, the kids took them, right? They're messing with me. They are, in fact, they're, they're filming me. They're videotaping me right now so they can put this on YouTube or Facebook, right? And your mind begins to spin these wild conspiracy theories about where your keys could possibly be, right? And then you turn, and then you look, and there they are, right there on the table, right? Right there in plain view, right? right there all along, and you look around and you're like, somebody's really messing with me, right? And then you realize no one's even there. No one's messing with you. They were there all along. It's just for some reason, you couldn't see them. How long have they been there? I have no idea, right? Have you been there before? Yes. Sometimes we cannot see things that are right in front of us, and oftentimes it's the same with the truth. Sometimes the truth be right in front of our faces, and for the life of us, we cannot see it. Sometimes we can't see the plain truth about people, right? We really want to believe certain things. Relationships make us stupid sometimes, right? Sometimes we can't see the plain truth about the choices that we make, because we can talk ourselves into anything. Sometimes we can't even see the plain truth about ourselves and who we really are as people. And sometimes the truth is in front of us, And it's there, and everybody else sees it, but for some reason, we cannot see it. And that's exactly kind of what happens here in the second half of this incredible story here in Mark chapter 2. There is a truth about Jesus that is so important and that is so plain that is right there for everyone to see, but some people just can't see it. Now, before we jump in here this morning, 
and look at the ha- second half of the story. Let me just remind you about the first half of the story, where we've been, right? And so Jesus is in the very early parts of his ministry. Like, like this is, he's just getting started, really. And he was, he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and right after that he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by, by the, the devil. And then he goes right after that into public ministry where he begins preaching the good news and, and telling people to repent and believe the gospel. And then after that, he goes right to the Sea of Galilee. He, he then finds his, his first four disciples, you know, Andrew, um, Simon, which is Peter, uh, James, and John, right? And then they go uh, to Capernaum, to Peter's t- uh, hometown, and then Jesus preaches in a synagogue there. And while they're there, he, he casts out a demon in, right there in the middle of the service. And then they go to the Peter's house, and then they tell him about Peter's mother-in-law, and he heals her Right? And then he spends the whole evening casting out demons and, and healing people from all around the town. And Jesus then and his disciples the very next day go ahead and decide to take a road trip, and they begin to go to all the towns around Galilee preaching the gospel uh, in the synagogues and healing people. And, and Jesus' popularity is growing to the point he can't go anywhere, even out in the, in the desert by himself without a crowd forming around him. And so after this trip around the cities of Galilee, then he comes, they come back to Peter's house in Capernaum, and they're not there very long, and suddenly they, you know, people just start showing up to the point that the, the house is overflowing with people, that you can't even get through the door anymore. And then five men show up, uh, four men carrying another one on a stretcher, and, and, and they've come to bring him to Jesus so Jesus can heal him, but they can't even get through the door of the house because it's so crowded, but they don't let that stop them. They climb up on the roof, right, because they know that Jesus is going to help him, right? They climb up on the top of the house, and they begin to tear the roof open, and then they, and they begin to dig through this earthen roof, and, and dirt and debris is falling all over the crowd and interrupting Jesus' uh, sermon, and, and they tear this hole in Peter's roof and that's big enough for a man to fit on this, as he lays down on his bed and they lower him in front of Jesus so that he could be healed. And it says, and he saw their faith. And as we talked about last week, what we learned from just this first half of the story was the fact that that is how we come to Jesus. It is by faith. We come to him by faith. And that we should also then... Never let anything get in the way between us and Jesus. And that we should do everything in our power to remove every obstacle to bring other people to Christ. And so that's where we are in this story so far. Jesus is preaching the gospel. Uh, There's a crowded house, and the roof gets torn off above him, and then they lower this man down before Jesus, right? And then in verse 5 it says, And he saw their faith, right? And he says to the paralytic man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And what you have to realize as you begin to, 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 to take in this part of the story is, is, is that this, this man, what, what Jesus said to him, was not what he was expecting to hear, right? Son, your sins are forgiven. He was not expecting to hear that, right? And, and neither was his friends. They weren't expecting to hear that, and neither was, was the crowd that was there around them. They were not expecting to hear those words, right? It wasn't anything that anybody in the first century would expect to hear, even if they, after they heard this story and they were following along for the first time, that would have caught them by surprise. And, and if you're reading the Bible for the first time and you read this story for the first time and you're following along what Jesus is doing, right, that is not what you're expecting to hear because, because everyone was, was expecting to hear what you would normally expect to hear in a story like this, that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, you are healed is what you expected him to say, Right? Or, or that your faith has made you well is really what you expected him to say. Right? Or maybe not even what, 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 what you'd expect him to say, but what you expect him to do. Because so far what we've seen about Jesus is Jesus touches people when he heals them. So we might expect that when, he, when Jesus saw their faith, he touched the paralytic and then he was healed. That's what we'd expect. And that's certainly what they expected. If you're reading this story and following along and seeing what's actually happened, that's what would normally you kind of expect to happen. But Jesus does something that nobody expects. He said something that nobody was prepared for him to say. He said, son, he said, son your sins are forgiven. And I want you to know that he said it this way on purpose. You see, what you need to understand is this is an event that was ordained by God and orchestrated by God to happen this exact way at this moment in time. 
Because the stage has been set for Jesus to make the greatest revelation of himself to date. Everything that has happened so far has led to this dramatic moment in history. Right? Everything that, that Jesus has, has that's happened in his life right, has, has led to this particular point in, in salvation history. John the Baptist, fulfilling the prophecy, came preparing the way of the Lord. Right? Jesus got baptized and the Holy Spirit visibly came down and descended upon him. Right? And then the Father right, says out loud from heaven, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased for all to hear. And then Jesus begins to preach with such authority that everyone's astonished by his preaching because nobody preaches like Jesus. And then a demon-possessed man falls at the feet of Jesus and by his command he casts him out. Right, right. But he, before that, he, the, the demon said, you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus said, shut up and get out. And that demon obeyed him. Right? And that, that confirms that Jesus has, has authority over the spiritual world. And then Jesus you know, confirms his authority over the physical world by, by healing Peter's mother-in-law of, of her, her fever. Right? And then he goes out to the Sea of Galilee and, and authoritatively proclaiming the gospel everywhere he goes and casting out demons and healing people, basically you know, leaving no doubt that, that he has this heavenly authority. And so as his popularity grows... And, and as people grow in their belief, right, that he's able to heal them, the, the plain truth emerges. And this, the plain truth is, is actually staring them in the face, right? Who he is, is is staring them in the face, but for some reason it still eludes them. It's, for some reason they still can't really see who Jesus is. And so, and so now, with everything pointing this direction, all the events leading to this moment, Jesus takes this opportunity right, to put on full display who he is. He's about to reveal for everyone in the room who he really is in his nature. And like I said, this is a truth that's been staring them in the face. And these people, they've been following Jesus around, his disciples even, the people that have been going town to town searching for him to, just so they can see him, the crowds that gather around him. He's about to reveal to them a truth right, that, has been, that has been right there for all to see. It's staring them in the face, but it's, it, but, and it's, a, it's a truth that, that even stares you in the face. And, and I want you to understand, I want you to hear me on this. If there's nothing else today that you get out of this sermon, if there's nothing else that you take away from this message, if there's nothing else that you learn here and now, you need to learn this truth. This is the thing that you need to know. This is the thing that, that you need to understand. This is the thing that you absolutely need to believe. This is the thing that you need to settle in your heart forever and ever and ever. It needs to be never an issue again. This is the thing that you must grab a hold of and believe with all your heart and stake your eternity on it. And the truth is this. Jesus reveals to these men in the story the truth that Jesus is God. That's the truth that Jesus reveals here. Jesus is God. Now, for most of you, this is not news. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you know, this, is, this is not something new. You hear me talk about this all the time. Right? I continually refer to Jesus as God in the flesh. Right? Uh, we talk about Jesus being the Son of God and God the Son. We talk about the Trinity and the triune nature of God. A clear picture that we see in Jesus' baptism. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present together in one place. But what you need to understand, right? what we all need to just grab a hold of and hold on to, that this is a non-negotiable truth. This is an absolutely essential truth. This is a truth that if you don't believe, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you don't have salvation. You don't know Christ. Hear me on this. I, 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 don't, I don't want you to misunderstand, okay? If you don't believe that Jesus is fully divine and been eternally God from eternity past, you are not saved. You don't know Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Right? I really want you to hear me on this. Because, because this is not a matter of our opinions. This is not a matter for theological debates. This is not something that's subject to your opinion. It's not a matter of what you think about the end times. Well, you know, I'm a premillennial, pre-tribulation person. Well, I'm, a, I'm an all-millennial all person. It's, it's not that kind of a deal, right? 
It's, it's not like, well, you know, I kind of like, I kind of lean a little bit more towards Arminianism, or, you know, I, I really kind of identify with the points of, of Calvin. It's not one of those kind of issues, right? This is not something that's subject to degree, disagreement. This is not about our opinions. This is the central issue of your faith. If you don't get this right, if you don't get this point right, you do not get Christianity right, and you don't have salvation. You were not saved. And, and understand, I'm saying this with all the love and respect that I can possibly muster. I, I'm saying this as loving as I can. I'm telling you the truth because I love you, right? You need to understand this. This is, this is why this point is, is so important, right? This is critical. This is why this point is so big on your notes. It is essential to your faith. So understand, if you believe that Jesus was a man at some point in history who had to work his way to become God through some religious system like other men do... Then, then, then the truth of God is not in you. You were not saved. You do not know Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus began his existence as an angel that God had created at some point in the past, you were not saved. The love of God is not in you. If you believe that Jesus was created at any point in, in history, right, and that he is not eternally God the Son, you don't know him and you're lost. And I would call you to repent and believe the gospel. The central issue of the Christian faith is the identity of who Jesus Christ is. And Jesus, without question, without limitation, without qualification, without equivocation, is God. And that's the fact that Jesus has been presenting throughout his entire ministry. That Mark has been, he began his gospel talking about. He said, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is, what, this is the, 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 the truth that Mark has been proving from the very beginning. And it's the fact that the demons themselves recognize as they submit themselves to Jesus' authority. And so here we are in this story, and the stage is set for Jesus to reveal as clear as he can that he is in fact God. The truth has been staring these people in the face. And the truth has, 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 has something that, that some people have not been able to see, but it's been there. Jesus is going to finally pull back the veil a little more. And what we're going to find as we go through this story is some people are going to be confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, and some of them still are not going to believe. They're just not going to believe it. They're not going to believe that Jesus is God, even though that the facts are all there. Right? Even though that the evidence is all there, even though the data is all there, even though that, that, that Jesus will clearly demonstrate it, and we're going to talk about how he does demonstrate it, but some people in this story are just not going to accept the truth. Though, like those keys, it's right there in front of them. And what you need to understand is the reason why is that no matter how plain the truth is for us, we will still deny the truth in our unrighteousness, as Paul says. See, there's not such thing as an atheist in this world. There's not. People say they don't believe in God, but it's just not the truth. The Bible makes it really clear. Everybody understands that there is God. They just deny the truth and unrighteousness. Right? And the only way that we're actually going to come to, the, to the understand the truth and, and see the truth is for the Holy Spirit to come and convict us in our hearts and show us that this is, in fact, the truth. And so what we're going to see is Jesus revealing the truth, and we're going to see how some people begin to understand it, and we're going to see how some, so we're going to see the roots of how many people just won't understand the truth. Because as remember, we, we started off talking about how, how Jesus early on was in conflict with, with the devil when he was tempted, and then he was continually confronted with the spiritual forces of darkness. Well, this right here actually is a transition point in the story because this is the first of at least five encounters where Jesus comes into conflict with the religious establishment. This is where they begin to sour on him really, really fast. right? And this will ultimately result in the religious leaders wanting to kill Jesus because they simply won't believe. And so what we're going to look at in this text is we're, we're, going, to, we're going to see how Jesus is, is exactly what he claimed to be, right? Jesus, that he's God in the flesh. And then we're going to see how, how masterfully and skillfully that he, he does this. And so we're going to walk through beginning in verse 5, and it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So not only does Jesus' words surprise the people in the room, he's setting the stage for Jesus to reveal who he is. And so he reminds them 
And so it reminds us of a really important truth, right? This is where it really kind of has to begin for us. Because nothing else is going to make any sense if we don't understand this. And the root of our problem, the root of our pain, the root of all of your troubles, the root of all of your injuries, and the root of your illnesses, infirmities, and, and your conflicts, and your broken heart, the root of everything that's ever gone wrong in your life, the root of that problem is sin. It's all the same root. It all comes from the same place. Whether it's a rash on your skin or whether it's a broken heart because someone left you, it's all the same. And when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, sin and death entered the world. The world was perfect before that happened. There was no pain. There was no sorrow. There was no disease. But then Paul reminds us, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one a man, one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, sin brings with it the consequences of, of death. It brings death to our bodies. It brings death to our relationships. Right? We all kind of experience you know, what sin does to relationships. It brings, it brings death to our health, our finances, even, even our work or careers. And when you feel pain and whenever you experience hurt, you are experiencing the effect, the result of sin, either directly by you know, drinking so much your liver dies, right? Or indirectly where you accidentally like, you know, stub your toe and fall down and bump your head. The root of all of your problems, the root of all of your issues is the same. It is sin, including the root of our greatest problem, which is the fact we are by our nature rebels to God. Every single one of us has chosen to go our own way. We all have chosen to disobey God. We've chosen to violate his, his law. We've all lied. We've all stolen and cheated and blasphemed God. We've all been selfish, very, 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 very selfish. We've all made other things more important than God, which is idolatry. If your job is more important to you than your relationship with God, then your work is an idol, plain and simple. You worship your work, whether you like to admit it or not. We all worship something. It's the same thing with money. If money's more important to you than your relationship with God, then money is your idol. And it can be the same for even good things like, like your children. Your children can become an idol just the same. And same with your spouse. If you value, whatever you value more than God, whatever you put on the throne before God becomes an idol in your life. And we have all done that. And even as Christians, we still struggle with that. We were born rebels to God. Right? And we are rightfully condemned because of that and judged to suffer the wrath of God. God is a holy and just and righteous God, which means we rightfully deserve that. And that, my brothers and sisters, is our greatest problem because one day, all of us will take our turn. We will all stand before God because we will die. Every one of us. I feel really, really good today, right? But I'm still reminded that, that I'm still mortal. I will, at some point in history, there will not be Sherman Burkhead anymore. It just will not exist. We will all die and we will stand and face this holy God. And if our sins are not forgiven, all of us will get exactly what we deserve, God's justice. Besides, just so you know, the only thing God ever owes you is justice. That's all he owes you. If you want to get what, 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 what you got coming, then that's what it is. Right? It's by his grace he doesn't give it to us. But we will experience then, if we die in our sins, his justice, and we will experience the wrath of God, right? and that it means being cast out of his life-giving presence forever into a permanent darkness forever and experiencing torment and loneliness and pain, which is called hell. But Jesus came to save us from that. Brothers and sisters, that's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the reason why we fall in love with Jesus. That's the reason why we sing songs like Mighty to Save. That's the reason why you know, we sing songs like Beautiful One that I love, right? Jesus, God himself, came on a rescue mission to rescue us from that. Right? And that's what we see here in Jesus' words. He says to the paralytic man, Son, your sins are forgiven. You see, not only does he forgive, heal this man from the effects of his sin, he heals this man from the root of his sin as well. He gives forgiveness to this man who came to faith in him. And again, this is a shocking statement because, because not anyone expected that. And notice it says, you know, the, re the reaction, right? Now, some of the scribes, the religious leaders, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, how does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, one of the things that you have to realize in this text is that these scribes, 
they're very prominent men in the Jewish faith. They are both simultaneously right, and they are simultaneously wrong. Sometimes we get it that way, right? Sometimes we're right about things, but we're wrong about a detail of it. Because they are correct. They are on the money. Their theology is straight. Only God can forgive sins. Theology, you know, theologically speaking, they're correct. Because, because sin is an assault on the glory of God. Sin is a rebellion against God. And the only person who can forgive sin against God is God. Because think about this. You have a, a good friend that you love very deeply, and they hurt you deeply. Maybe they betray you. Maybe they turn their back on you. Maybe they steal from you. Maybe they, they assault you. Maybe, whatever it is, right? They do something bad, right? And the relationship between them is broken. It's severed. It's crushed, right? And, and, and you, you have every right to be angry. You have every right to be you know, frustrated and upset and hurt. Right? But then someone comes along that's, that, that knows you, that wants to patch things up, and they come along and they go to them and say, oh yeah, you're forgiven. Does that work? That somebody goes on your behalf to forgive someone that you haven't forgiven? No. Someone cannot forgive someone else for someone else. The only way a person can be forgiven in this circumstance, a person that wrongs you, the only way that person can be forgiven is for you to forgive them. Otherwise, there is no forgiveness. Only God can forgive the sins and, and the, 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 the violations of his law committed against him. And so they are absolutely correct. They are right. Which incidentally establishes for, for them a litmus test by which they can actually then judge whether or not Jesus is what he says he is, whether he is God. Because if he cannot forgive sins, then he's not God. But if he can, then he is. And we're going to see how important this is in a moment. But these scribes are correct that, that only God can forgive sins, but then they are incorrect about Jesus blaspheming, right? Because Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And, and what's interesting here is, is these men understand what Jesus is claiming. He is claiming by this statement to be God. And, and this is important because, because there are those who, who deny the divinity of Christ who will say, well, Jesus never ever claimed to be God. Right here, he does. And the scribes know it. That's the reason why they say that he's blaspheming. Right? Because, because the blasphemy that they're referring to is to claim to be God or, or to claim the attributes of God. Jesus is claiming to be divine here, and the scribes, they understand that. And that is why they ask the question. That is why that they're upset. That's why, in another instance, they'll pick up rocks to throw at him, right? Because they know what he's saying. Now understand, this is just one of many places in the Bible that Jesus makes clear who he is through, throughout the Gospels. I mean, if you will read all the Gospels in detail, you will see it over and over again. Just read the Gospel of John, and you will see it over and over and over again, right? But here we are right now, and these events of Jesus' ministry are, you know, are, are, are finally about to reach their first crescendo. Like everything's kind of leading up to this point. And, and Jesus de declares, and he's about to prove that he is God. And, and notice how he begins to prove it. Look at verse 8. Immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, think about this. He has just made the statement, and nothing else has happened. They just thought these things. And Jesus immediately demonstrates who he is by displaying his omniscience. He is showing them instantaneously that he is all-knowing. There's only one that's all-knowing. That's God. Jesus could read their mind. Jesus knew their thoughts. Only God knows our thoughts. Because Jesus knows all things. He has demonstrated that he is omniscient by speaking out loud what they're thinking. They're thinking, right? Man, he's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. But this guy, he's not God. And Jesus is like, why are you thinking those things? Why are you questioning who I am? Why don't you think that I'm God? Because that's exactly what they were thinking. Understand, they were thinking that he was not God in spite of the evidence to the contrary. Because Jesus had demonstrated over and over and over again throughout the entire area that he, was, he had both power over the physical world through healing, he had power over the spiritual world by casting out demon after demon and them submitting themselves to him, 
Not to mention the demons were, were bound to obey him. And the fact that he preached with an authority that no one had ever even heard before because no rabbi preached like Jesus. No one had the authority that Jesus claimed when he preached the word. The evidence was mounting that Jesus was divine, but, but when Jesus claimed his divine prerogative to forgive sins, they immediately rejected it. He just can't possibly be God, despite the evidence to the contrary. And what you and I need to understand is that some people are going to reject the truth about Christ regardless of what all the evidence says. Regardless of what the evidence proves. The thing that you and I have to just come to terms with is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the, is the best historically attested to event in all of ancient antiquity. There is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other event that has ever happened in ancient antiquity. The resurrection account is the only event that fits all of the available evidence, and there has never been another theory that adequately explains and, and takes into consideration all the details. And, and the basic evidence for the resurrection itself is not even disputed. It's not disputed by, by any critical scholar or historian. People now on YouTube will dispute it, but they're not critical scholars with a reputation. They're knuckleheads. Anybody that, that knows what they're saying, whether they're religious or, or not religious, right, will agree that the, 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 that the um, data is, is the same. Jesus was a man in history. This is a, a point of contention for a lot of people, or not a lot of people, a few people on YouTube, they'll say, well, Jesus never existed. And Bart Ehrman, who happens to be one of the most famous critical scholars who is not a Christian, that, that all atheists point to, to use to, to help corroborate their side of things, he will say, that's just stupid. He is a man of history. You, like, like, like it's, it's ridiculous to th even think that he didn't exist. All history proves it, right? And that he, he created a movement that began to threaten the religious uh, elite in Judea. And he was crucified on a Roman cross. Again, another, another historical detail. And he died. He died, right? Again, it's not historically even debatable, right? All historians agree to those facts. They also agree the fact that he was laid in a well-known tomb of a religious and civic official, which means they knew where the tomb was. It wasn't an obscure tomb that he got lost in. Right? And then three days later, the tomb was empty. Again, a historical fact that they all concede, and that Jesus appeared to his disciples. Even Bart Ehrman himself said, that's a fact. It's a historical fact. I can't explain how it happened. I don't know why it happened. I don't even know what that means that it happened. Right? He still denies the, the, the resurrection, but he still admits that, that, the, that the evidence is there, that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he died. And as a result, these followers of Christ who ran as cowards after he was, he was arrested, then suddenly grew a backbone, and then in the, same, in the same community where he was crucified, began to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ to all that would listen. Right? Risking life and limb in all of them, but one would be... Um, martyred for the faith, tortured and martyred for the faith. And this teaching changed the entire world. We are here today in this room 2,000 years later with our culture, Western culture, as a result of what happened here. So no one of any reputation, be they religious or skeptical, deny the evidence. But there are people who will know the evidence, who will see the evidence, but they deny the resurrection. And they simply do so because they refuse to, to acknowledge where the evidence leads. They have decided that the supernatural isn't possible out of hand. They have just decided beforehand that I'm not going to even consider that. All right? And so they reject Jesus' resurrection based on a preconceived idea, not what the evidence itself maintains. And it's the same here. These men are holding on to the idea that this man from Galilee, this nobody from Galilee, he could not possibly be God. He just can't be. Even though all the evidence leads to an important truth. Right? But what we need to understand is evidence information does not bring people to salvation. That's the truth that we just need to come to terms with. No matter how compelling the evidence is, no matter how inclined we, we, we are to want to just tell people all the details, right? we are inclined by our nature to deny the truth because we're sinners. Right? And, and more than that, we are born spiritually dead. The Bible tells us you're dead in your sins and your trespasses. 
Right? You're spiritually dead. And what I need you to understand is the, the metaphor isn't that you're floating around in the, the ocean of sin, you know, drowning and, and coming back up and, and almost you know, holding on, barely clinging to life, and then somehow Jesus comes along in his little uh, lifeboat and he pulls you up and then rescues you out of that. That is not the metaphor for what, what, what's happened to us. The metaphor is you're already dead at the bottom of the ocean, and your corpse is rotted all the way to the bones. There's nothing left except that. And Jesus dives in after you and pulls you up and then supernaturally gives you new life. That's the metaphor. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you were born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And what we have to realize is, is everybody remembers John 3.16, right? That verse. I mean, it's so famous. We preach on that verse. We love that verse. It gives us hope, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ten people put that on his eye black for his um, uh, football game, and millions of people looked up that verse. I mean, that was like one of the coolest things, that, that how God could use you know, the gospel that way, right? But what we need to realize is, is that the context for John 3.16 is John 3.3. 3. That unless one is born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, right? You see, in order for, you, for someone to have eternal life and enter the kingdom of God, they must believe. And in order for them to believe, they must be born again. They must have new spiritual life. And information and evidence can't give spiritual life. If it could, then everybody would come to faith because they would look at the evidence and believe. But we know that they don't. Right? And they don't even in this story with Jesus standing right there in front of them. Now, before we move on, does this mean that, we, we, that, that presenting evidence and engaging in apologetics and defending our faith is pointless? Absolutely not. Because the Bible instructs us to give us, and gives us, you know, he says that we need to give reason for our hope. In 1 Peter 3.15, if there's a verse that you want to lean on, that one's certainly it. We're not only called to, to give an, apology, an apologetic for our faith, we're also called to defend and contend for the faith. And all of us should grow in our knowledge of Christ, and we should strive to the very best of our abilities to answer people's questions and objections to faith. But for some, because for some reason, God has decided in his grace to allow us to participate in his redemptive work. Right? And, he, and he uses our conversations and our apologetics and our encounters with people to help open their eyes. God, the Holy Spirit, can use our testimonies and our defenses of the faith and our words and the way that we live our lives and the way that we treat people and the way we help people to help other people see the truth. God ordains the ends and the means. And so we should always be ready to cite the evidence and proclaim the truth and, and answer all the questions that we possibly can to the best of our ability, but we must always remember that, that only God, the Holy Spirit, can make them alive and open their eyes to the truth because salvation is 100% the work of God. And no one is going to see the truth until God opens their eyes, regardless of the evidence in front of them, just like right here. There's plenty of evidence about who Christ is to this point. And Jesus even goes so far to demonstrate that, that he's all-knowing. And he demonstrates it that, you know, by, by showing them that he knows their thoughts. Right? And then he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, this is only a couple verses, but there is a lot going on here. There's a lot of, a lot of threads that are coming together here. Okay, what you need to remember is what, what, uh, what the scribes said about God, only God forgiving sin. Okay? That's the litmus test. Because, because if, you, if you can't forgive sins, then you're not God. But if you can, you are. Right? That's really kind of what they had in their mind. But, but Jesus is going to leverage that truth. He's going to leverage what they already think. Right? And he sets up a test to prove that he can forgive sins. Notice what he says. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. See, what, what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's using rabbinical logic here. He's asking a pointed question. It's a typical Jewish rabbi technique of communication and teaching. He's asking a question that really has a point to it. Because what Jesus is doing, he's setting up a scenario based on what is easy and what is difficult. And the reasoning goes like this. If someone can do what's difficult, then they can do what is easy. Sound simple enough? Let me give you an example. If let's just, you and I were to go to the gym, okay? Carson, I've been spending a lot of time there lately, but 
We go to the gym and you say, hey, can you squat 225 pounds? And then I proceed to load up the bar with 305 pounds. And I ask you, well, which is easier for me to do? 305 pounds or 225 pounds? And you go, that's stupid, right? 225 pounds, obviously, right? But then I go ahead and I proceed to squat 305 pounds. And then you would know then by implication that I'm able to do, you know, without question, 225 pounds, right? I did something harder and it follows logically that I can do the thing that's easier. That's, that's why Jesus asked this question this way, which is easier for him to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and take your bed and walk. And logically, to these scribes who are familiar with this kind of reasoning, it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one really would, would be there to dispute that and there would be no physical evidence to the contrary of that. While on the other hand, if he says rise and take up your bed and walk and that dude can't get up, then he's proven that he's not capable of doing that. And so the reality is, it's easier to say that you're forgiven than to physically and instantaneously heal someone by their reasoning. And so then Jesus, he's setting up this test that essentially says, if I can tell this guy to get up right, and walk, this paralytic man who's physically incapable of walking, right, and I can tell him to get up and pick up his bed and get out of here, and if he, if he, if he does that and, and he's healed, Right, then I have proven I can do that and also that I can forgive sins. And by implication, I am who I said I am. Okay? So then, that's what he does. He's like, so which is easier to forgive? He sets up this question, and then he looks at him and says, but so that you may know, that you may not doubt, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then says to the paralytic, he turns to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So this, this must have been like one of those moments where people are standing like this. Right? Because Jesus, in essence, says, which is harder for me to do, right? Forgive sins or, or for to heal this paralytic, right? And, and, and the scribes, they know, right? What he's saying, but even for the scribes, both of them are impossible. They, they can't forgive his sins, and they certainly can't heal him, right? And so either one would be a miracle, right? But the answer here is if a, person, if, a, if a person really could do either one, right? But the harder one would be to heal the paralytic. And then Jesus uses this understanding, this, this setup, this moment. He uses that, and he says, but you may know, that you may be confident, that you absolutely understand that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, so that you understand that, watch what I'm about to do here. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he did it. He rose immediately. Like, not like he stepped. It was immediately he got up and he picked up his bed and he walked out. Jesus said to this man, take up your bed and go. The man who was physically unable to, to sit up or stand up, he was in a bed. Miraculously, his body is completely healed and not just healed, He's also restored the strength that he can actually stand up and walk and pick up his bed and then leave the house. Just like Jesus said. Jesus demonstrated that, that he is God through his omnipotence. Jesus demonstrated that he is all-powerful and he has power over the physical world. And notice, okay, this is, these are these little details that are really important. He doesn't touch the man, okay? Every other time that Jesus heals somebody, to this point, he's touched them. He's laid hands on them. But he doesn't touch this man. He gives this man a verbal command, and he healed the man with his word. He affected the physical, created world by his word. And this right here, these are scribes who know the word of God. This should immediately take them right back to Genesis, right, where God spoke things into existence. That God, through his omnipotent power, simply just had to say the word, and the universe just leapt into existence. You see, up to this point, Jesus used verbal commands to drive out demons, and he laid hands on people. But in this moment, in front of this crowd, he looks right at this man, and he issues him a command to get up and walk. Take your bed and walk as a clear demonstration of his power over creation itself. He is indeed omnipotent. He just has to say the word. Which means he can make a paralytic walk by his command, which by implication means he can also forgive sins. And so the scribes were right because only God could forgive sins and Jesus demonstrated he can forgive sins because he is God. Now, this section ends with so that they may, they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw 
anything like this. And that, that right there is, is correct. They never saw anything like this. And the thing that we have to remember, there is a tendency in our culture today to look back on history with disdain as if we're smarter than everybody else that ever existed before us. We have a tendency to what they call, it's called historical snobbery. That somehow, someway, that the people back in Jesus' time were just a bunch of buffoons and idiots. And that somehow that they were going to be easily fooled because there was miracles in every corner. What you need to understand is they lived in a time there were no miracles, right? Like the things that happened, the reason why they happened, the reason why Jesus did it, because, because no one's seen them before. They hadn't been done before. Right? People weren't expecting these, these things to happen. They lived at a time when, when miracles weren't common. And so when they happened, they would have the same effect on them as they would on us. We would be just as amazed if we saw Jesus do the things that he did then, if he did them now. And so this, this is a very unexpected and an incredible display of supernatural power. And the evidence was mounting, and it was becoming overwhelming about who Christ really is. And then to add the cherry on top of all of that, right? He's already done all this. But then to add the cherry on top, Jesus refers to himself in this passage as the Son of Man. He said that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. You see, Jesus not only demonstrated by his power who he is, he then grounded who he is in the Scriptures the scriptures that these scribes would be very familiar with, particularly Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that say, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, Jesus, for the first time in, in Mark, he begins to use of himself the title Son of Man, a clear messianic title, and one that's dripping with divinity. And he begins to use it over and over again. As we go along in Mark, you'll see that. He uses it to, be, to build his identity. And he uses it here to clearly adding to this demonstration of who he is, that he is God in the flesh. But for many people in that room, this truth was staring them at the face. Some believed, but many of them just couldn't see it and refused to believe it. Right? As we're going to see in coming sessions, again, this is the beginning of several conflicts he's going to have with the scribes and the Pharisees. Right? And by the end of chapter 3, they're going to make up their mind they're going to kill Jesus. They just refuse to believe what the evidence is pointing to. It can't happen. It can't be that. So guess what? The best thing for us to do is just kill him. Let's just be done with him. Because they simply are blind to who Christ is. And so as we wrap up this section in Mark chapter 2, I'd like to just ask you a question. What do you see when you look at Jesus? Was he just some charismatic human being who did great things? Was he just this great teacher? Was he this perfect example of humanity and love? Was he just simply a good person? Or was he simply a, a human being who was working his way up to godhood so that he can you know, complete his ordinances and then become God? Or was he just an angel sent from God that became a man? Or do you see who, he, who Christ really is? God became flesh, coming into the world on a rescue mission to save sinners from their sin and from the wrath of God. I want you to understand this. Like, that's the difference in how we understand who he is. God didn't send somebody else after you. Do you realize that? He didn't send somebody else after you. He came himself. You understand that? He came to rescue you. That's how much he loves you, right? It says, for God so loved the world. That's how much he loves you. He came himself to save you, right? And I don't have to point this out, but I think you kind of know who you are, right? I know who I am. That God came to save you. And all you have to do is repent and believe the gospel. So what do you see when you look at Jesus? Do you see some man in history who did some great things? Or do you see God intervening in history to bring salvation to you, the one that he loves?
And so the application of this would be simply is the same. It is to turn and repent and believe the gospel. So if you haven't done that, then my call to you is repent, turn from your sin, and believe the gospel. And if you are a Christian, you need to continue to live actively, repenting and believing the gospel. We need to continually be turning away from the world and turning towards the one who came to save you. And then, jumping off what we talked about last week, if that's what you believe, you believe that Jesus is God and he can save people and that he can bring salvation to those who turn to him in faith, then you need to go out into this world and share that Jesus with them. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a beautiful and gorgeous and, and courageous truth. A truth that is so simple to understand. A truth that's so simple to hold on to, but a, a truth that really, for some people, just they get lost in the weeds. I don't, Lord, understand the, the, how the inner workings of the Trinity are. Your word says, your ways are higher than my ways, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. So there are just going to be things I'm not going to understand about you. You, by nature, are beyond my ability to define. You're outside the, the known universe. I can't even fathom that. How am I going to fathom you? But Father, I do know the things that you tell me that you are. I know the things that you say that you are. And I know that you are truthful. And so you say that you're triune. You say that Jesus is God. That Jesus himself says he is God. And Lord, I take you at your word. And I let the world think what it needs to think. But Father, I pray that we ground ourselves in that truth. That you, God, came to rescue sinners like us. That you set aside your wrath and your anger and you put it upon your own son who bore in his body the penalty that was due to us. And then in return, we could receive a righteousness we can't possibly deserve. How, Lord, can we not spend the rest of our lives worshiping you? Father, Fill our hearts up with this truth and your spirit, Lord God, and convince us of this even more so, that we walk with our heads up and, and walking towards holiness and then walk out of here, Lord God, to go tell our friends and our neighbors about the glories of Christ and that we'd share the hope of Jesus with the world and our community. We love you and praise you. Christ be praised. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.